Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that my strengths return, that all are here to hear your word, that the, the body of Christ, Father, has uh, persisted in this place for so long, and that your word continues to be the focus for this church. As I travel, Father, and as I have opportunities to meet and teach to others, it just reminds me how many are, are hungry for your word, how many come and go from Sunday to Sunday without, that benef- without the benefit of having been taught and to sit at your feet. Father, what a, what a blessing it is that we have that every week, whether it's through me or other men. It doesn't matter, Father. You're the one who teaches, and you've, you've poured your grace out here to make teaching available on a regular basis. And, and Father, through, through other means, your teaching is being spread around the world, and we, we're so amazed, Father, at the power you have to reach men and women whoever they are, wherever they are. Each of us was one of those people at one point where the word arrested us and caused us to rethink things that we took for granted and brought us into a relationship, Father, that has uh, made all new things for us, Father. Our life is new, our heart is new, our outlook is new, our family is new, our destiny, our future is new. And thank you, Father, for all those gifts and blessings. If we ever take them for granted, Father, just just grab us and, and take us out from our stupor and wake us up, Father. I pray that you'd always make it clear to us how important it is that we know you through your word and that we follow and obey what we know. And, Father, you give us accounts like the one we study today from the book of Judges of men who were arrested in their walk and in their life, Father, dedicated to you, consecrated And in some cases, Father, they lived up to the expectations you put upon them, and then in other cases, they didn't. Both sides, Father, both the good and the bad are instructive. One sets a model, Father, the other a warning. But we ask, Lord, that you would show us what we need to know from what we read today concerning ourselves, so that even as we study the life of another man, we are concerning ourselves with where we are today in our relationship, so that we won't miss what you have for us. Give us a heart to hear today, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old saying about a woman scorned. You all can finish it probably. You probably know how it ends. Well, in the story of Samson, twice now he has scorned a Philistine woman by the name of Delilah. He took a liking to this Philistine woman. And in the process, he led the Philistines to think that maybe they could finally find a way to learn the secret to his strength by using this relationship he has with Delilah. So they asked Delilah, would you find out what it is that makes him so strong? And she, as we saw last time, she just simply asked him, what is it that makes you strong? What's your secret? And on two separate occasions now, he's answered that question with false answers. His tricks left her scorned, unhappy, to say the least. But his success has also left him increasingly cocky, thinking that he could outsmart her endlessly with these games. We stopped last time as we were studying this to wonder why it is that he would even be willing to play this dangerous game. I concluded when we did that that it must be that Samson has assumed that his strength will just never leave him. He presumes that the Lord has nothing to say about the gift that he's given to Samson. That because he has it, he'll always have it, and therefore he has no fear of the Lord, so he's continued to play around with evil. But in spite of the first two attempts that Delilah had in getting to the secret, and despite Samson's rebuffing, he continues to play with her, and she continues to try to find out the answer. And in all of this, Samson is continuing to test the Lord's patience. 
And it's going to reach a breaking point this morning. That's where we go now in chapter 16. Let's read beginning in verse 13. Well, then Delilah said to Samson, Up to now you have deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my hair with the web and fasten it with a pin, then I will become weak and be like any other man. Let's stop there. This is the third time now. Third time she asks, How do you be defeated? And now the third time, Samson answers with a trick, but... If you notice, this time he begins to move very close to the true answer by turning her focus onto his hair. Remember, a Nazarite was never to cut his hair, any hair on his body for that matter. That's a part of the vow, the consecration that sets him apart to serve God. Now, by this time in his life, as we've already studied, he's already broken two of the three vows that came with being a Nazarite. The last remaining vow is the one with his hair. So his hair must be quite long by now at this point in his adult age. He mentions the seven locks of hair. That suggests his hair has been braided into seven lengths, probably to keep it manageable. Samson tells this woman, well, if you were to take those lengths of hair and you were to weave them in a loom, in other words, the instrument they use to make cloth, if you were to weave my hair into that loom and then you leave my hair locked in there with a pin so that his head is literally affixed into this loom, well, then I'll become weak. Now, this has got to be the most ridiculous one he's proposed so far, right? It's like he's run out of good ideas. He's just making stuff up now just to be silly. And it's kind of surprising, actually, that Delilah buys this one, especially in light of the earlier two. But more importantly for us, he's getting dangerously close to the true answer, isn't he? Samson's taking bigger risks. It's like he wants to gamble with a bigger payout. And, of course, what he's gambling with is the Lord's patience. We're left here with the impression that Samson has become a little bored with the easy victories, and he lacks a worthy adversary in this little battle. So he's willing to walk right up to the edge with the enemy just for the thrill of it. You get a sense like that? Remember, the source of Samson's power, let's be clear on this for a minute, the source of his power is not the length of his hair, nor is it even his Nazarite vow. The source of his power is a gift from God made possible by the Holy Spirit. That's where his power is coming from. The Lord has appointed him this power by his Spirit so that Samson would go off and do certain things. It was to serve a certain purpose. And therefore, the Lord may withdraw this power at any time. The thing is, Samson's given no thought to that prospect. He's playing with fire. He's assuming he can never be burned. And when you're supposed to be used by God in a mighty way, and you toss it aside and you begin to play with this idea that you are your own boss, you can do as you please, that you can use things God has given you to serve yourself, there is inherent danger in there. The more the Lord chooses to accomplish through us, the greater the danger we might wake up one day and think that it's all about us. Maybe it's someone with a personal ministry that can reach millions of people, people we might see on TV, people we might read about in books. But that person, if they're not careful, can over time be filled with pride to think that there's something inherently special about them and that that thing in them is responsible for their success. And then at some point, as a result, they stop serving the Lord, they start serving themselves with what God has given them. And if they do that, they test the Lord's patience. Because, friends, how long is he going to tolerate that kind of selfish self-delusion, that pride, and take some kind of action to reclaim the glory that he alone rightly deserves? How long is he going to put up with that? And it's just as often you see this pattern happening in small places. The big fish in a small pond problem. 
You have a Sunday school teacher. You have a deacon, an elder. Maybe it's the church secretary. Someone who has an opportunity to serve in the kingdom. They've been equipped. They've been placed in a position. God has empowered them, if you will, to some degree to serve him, to serve his people. And then one day that big fish in a small pond wakes up and concludes that God's sheep exist to serve them. They forget their place. And as a result, pride and ego take the place of a servant's heart. That scenario can play out a million different ways. We're all susceptible to this at times. So all of us have to take care as we seek to serve the Lord in our own gifts and in the opportunities that he gives us. We have to be careful to remember it's not about us. It's about Christ. And if and when we ever miss that fact and begin to misuse the opportunities that the Lord gives us, then what we're doing in that moment is what Samson is doing in this moment. You begin to test the Lord's patience. Like Samson, you begin to toy with a Delilah, so to speak, daring the Lord to find a way to reveal our weakness, daring the enemy to take advantage of it. And if you don't repent, if we don't come back from that brink and say to ourselves, no, this is not about us, it's about Christ, then sooner or later what I suspect the Lord may do is what he does here, which is he allows the Delilah in our life to have her way with us and to bring us low, to humble us. Verse 14. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his hair and wove them into the web or into the loom. And she fastened it with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the pin of the loom and the web. All right, well, this is the third time, right? Delilah finds her chance. He's sleeping. She weaves her hair. I'm not sure exactly how he slept through all of that, but apparently he's a sound sleeper. By the way, the reference to him sleeping... While she does this, this gives us a clue as to what's truly going on here. If Samson is sleeping in a woman's presence in this day and age, then it's likely he's been enjoying her company in an intimate way, in an intimate sense. And if so, then perhaps Samson has been willing to play along with all of these schemes, knowing what she's really trying to do, so that he could gain access to her bedroom. He continues to propose all these false answers so he can prolong this relationship. And in doing that, he can ensure this continued access to her. If this is true, then it would once again illustrate that his lustful weakness is leading down a path of self-destruction. So as he sleeps, she weaves. Now he's clearly enjoying making a fool of her. Going back to what we've learned about him already, he likes riddles, he likes puzzles, he likes to play games. Seems like this is just a part of his nature to his own detriment in this case. In all of this, though, he's acting as if he's immortal. Of course, we know weaving hair is not the secret, so when the trap is sprung, he escapes. I'm not sure which Philistines she found and recruited to ambush him this third time, because by now you think the word's out on his trickery, right? The first two groups that tried to ambush didn't get anywhere. You think they might be wary of ambushing him anymore, but evidently they were still willing to try. They're disappointed, because of course weaving his hair isn't the answer. His power, to repeat, his power comes from the Spirit's anointing, not from anything physical. This is not magic. This is not sorcery. This is God. And, of course, there is the Nazarite vow, but Samson has enjoyed his anointing from birth. It was given in connection with the vow, but the vow centered on three restrictions, two of which he has already violated, as we know. So what we can say is this. That in this moment, Samson's vow to serve God is hanging by a single thread, or I maybe I should say a single hair, right? But the purpose, no, 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 work with me here, come on. 
But the purpose of his vow was not so that he would have miraculous power. Rather, Samson's observance of his vow was to be evidence of a heart that is dedicated to living a life for God's purposes. You think of it like the gas gauge in your car. When that gas gauge points to empty, your car is going to stop. But the gauge didn't control whether your car runs or not. Right? The gauge is reflecting something else that is in fact in control. Similarly, Samson's willingness to abide by his vows did not control his power. His vow was merely an indication of whether or not he was willing to serve the Lord. His willingness to keep his vow would indicate a willingness to serve the Lord. But over the years, what have we watched? We've watched him set aside this vow in steps, one at a time, so that he could serve his flesh. And that setting aside is like a gas gauge moving to empty in stages. It's evidence of his slipping commitment to serve the Lord. Therefore, if Samson is not going to serve the Lord with the power the Lord gave him, then there is no longer any reason for the Lord to equip him with that power. It's not a parlor trick. It's not something you show off at parties. It's not just so that you can feel good about yourself. It's not so you can be famous. You know, Samson had a power for a purpose. And remember how the story of Samson began? What was his mother told? That Samson would be consecrated, set apart from the womb, made a Nazarite so that he could free his people or begin to free his people from the oppression of the Philistines. That's why he has his power. But he's not doing that. He's not using it that way. So all that remains at this point of his vow is that his hair has not been cut. He's already tossed aside the other two that mark him as a servant of God. And friends, it's no coincidence that he finds himself in the bedroom of a Philistine woman who is overtly working to defeat him. He did not get here by chance. He got here because of conscious choices that brought him here. Sin's deceitfulness has clouded Samson's judgment and it has deadened his conscience. Each step he took away from God has left him weaker and more enslaved to his fleshly weaknesses. So now he is so absorbed in the deceitfulness of his flesh that he's become bored with the sin of his life. He's cocky, he's enslaved, and now he's willing to risk breaking his final vow because that's the only thing he can get out of this. That's the only charge, that's the only excitement left in his life. Or so it would seem. The moment you decide you can enjoy the pleasure of sin while also enjoying the privilege of serving the Lord is the moment you begin to do it alone. The thing is, you just won't know it right away. And that's where you find Samson's heart. Verse 15. Then she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. Delilah, bless her heart, comes back a fourth time. This woman is nothing if not persistent. And she asks for the secret, and she press. I love the way this says it, right? She presses him daily with her words, pleading with him for this answer. And the Hebrew literally says, Samson's life was shortened to the point of death. <laughs> so, friends, what it's saying is, he gets to the point that her nagging begins to annoy him to death. No amens from the husbands, please. Does this remind you of anything? Didn't it remind you of the earlier moment in his story? 
when that crying woman convinced him to give up the answer to the riddle, right? So as strong as Samson may be on the outside, he's obviously weak spiritually and emotionally, such that merely crying or a nagging woman is enough to cause him to turn away from the Lord and to forfeit his dignity and his power, giving it over to someone who had no right to have it, and I should add, no power to compel it. And he just hands it over. In the end, he gives up information that will lead to his own death. Ironically, he's so worried about being nagged to death that he's willing to risk literal death. How foolish can you be? He tells her the truth. He says if you cut his hair, he's done for. But notice in verse 17, we're told this is what, quote, lies in Samson's heart. In other words, Samson speaks as he truly believes in this moment. But think about what that says. Samson is indicating that he feels it's his hair that gives him his strength. He feels that so long as he doesn't break that final part of his vow, then he's invincible. It would seem that he recognized that he's already broken the other two, right? Because he doesn't mention the other two. He doesn't say, well, I have to break three vows. He says, I only have to break one, which, again, confirms for us that the first two have already been broken. And he's resting in that final piece of his Nazarite vow. But friends, here's my point. Notice he does not say that his power comes from the anointing of God. He does not say that this is something God has granted him. He has come to think that the source of his power is something he controls, something that is about him personally, something within him. But friends, as we've already said, the Nazarite vows are simply an outward display of an inward commitment to serve the Lord. The vows themselves are not the source of the gifting. They're the sign of the gifting. And so his statement is further evidence that he has left God behind. He is resting in a kind of pagan appreciation of God's power. In fact, there is almost no distinction between what he is saying and the pagan views of the day in which he lived. Because in that day, a pagan and their gods, their pantheon, whatever they chose as their gods, they would act toward those gods as if they possessed a degree of control over the gods that they worshipped. And by that I mean they knew that if they did wrong things, bad things would come from the gods. But if they did the right things toward the gods, then the gods would reward them with good results. And in that sense, you kind of think of it like a steering wheel. I could kind of get the gods to do what I wanted by how I did what I'm supposed to do. There's nothing true in that. It's just that was the mindset of the pagan. It's like a genie in a bottle, you know. He has all the power, but I can rub it. That's what Samson apparently thinks now about his own power. Friends, that's obviously not how the living God works. Can we all agree to that? Right? He has plans. He has purposes of his own. And yes, he has graciously allowed us an opportunity to participate with him in that work. But let's not, let's not make any mistakes here. We do not manipulate God. We do not control him. We do not otherwise cause him to do anything that he was not already inclined to do. That's, that's God's sovereignty. In fact, our relationship with the Lord is exactly the opposite of a pagan's view. The Lord calls upon his children to obey his word, and we must respond to him if we are to see his pleasure. Not the other way around. And it appears Samson's forgotten this. He's forgotten that it's not his hair that assures him of success. It's the Lord's spirit working in him. God gave him that gift to ensure he would do what God wanted him to do in accomplishing great things for God and his people. And therefore, his power is only going to be there so long as he sets his mind on serving the Lord. But he has set aside two of the three vows, and as he's done that, he's moved further from the Lord. And now, as he gets ready to set aside the third of those vows, 
The Lord's going to withdraw his spirit from Samson. And with it will go his power. Why did he take this risk? And we've asked this question a couple of different times, and I can't get away from it. Why do you take this risk? The only answer I can come to, the only assumption I can make, is that he could not have imagined how the Philistines could have ever been in a position to hold him down long enough to actually cut his hair. I mean, even if they walked in with the shears, until it's cut, he has his power. And as soon as they get close, you know, he he pushes them back like the Incredible Hulk, I guess. You know, he's just assuming he'll never be in a position where they'd have the opportunity. But you know what he's forgetting? He's forgetting that the same Lord who gave him the power to do what he does is a Lord who can bring about any set of circumstances, including circumstances you cannot foresee. Circumstances in which you see your hair cut before you realize it's gone. Persistent sin can lead us to conclude that there are no consequences for our choices. It's a part of the deceitfulness of sin. It leads us to think we can sin with impunity. We can just do what we want forever, and there's nothing God will do about it. We fool ourselves in that perspective. We come to believe and we can handle whatever sin brings to us. That's what Paul means when he speaks of the deceitfulness of sin. Our sin nature lies even to us about what will come from it. In the end, his pride, Samson's pride, lied to him. It told him he could control the situation no matter what he told Delilah. In fact, he was so self-assured, he could look her in the face and say, cut this hair and you got me, and have no fear. The Lord uses that pride and his lust to bring him down. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him and his strength left him. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. And they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains. And he was a grinder in the prison. Well, Delilah, for her part, recognizes there's something different this time in the story. She senses, you know, I think he actually told me the truth this time. She senses his heart. So she finds a way, and who knows how she did this. She persuades the Philistine men to come up once more, and this time to bring the money. And they have their opportunity. Now, a woman who previously kissed Samson is now betraying him into the hands of his own enemies for pieces of silver. Ring any bells? In verse 19, we're told she makes him to sleep on her knees. And friends, you don't really have to read between the lines too hard there to understand that this is, again, a, a suggestion of an intimate situation. So it would seem Samson got what he wanted. Then Delilah set about getting what she wanted manipulating him through his lust. She calls the man in, they cut his hair. Apparently he's a sound sleeper, which makes me wonder, has he been drinking again? Breaking that other vow. As soon as his hair is gone, Delilah begins to afflict him, we're told. And it looks like the Philistines said to her, you know what, this time you get to pounce on him the first time. We'll see if this one is truly going to work. She does, it works. They eventually then go to the next step. Notice though, as this begins, Samson wakes up and says to himself, Oh, no, here we go again. Let me just break off all... Wait a minute. What? He's surprised. He has no idea that he doesn't have his power. Do you get that? 
It's not as though, friends, you can feel the working of the Holy Spirit inside you. That's a misconception about how he works. It's not like you feel juiced up. He only discovers the situation has changed when he goes to put the power of God into action. Notice at the the end of verse 20, Samson's weakness there is specifically said to be the result of the Spirit leaving him. Not his hair being cut, but the Spirit leaving him. Now certainly the Lord's decision to depart was connected to the hair, we get that, but it's only a confirmation of what we've seen already in Samson's heart. That is to say, when Samson says, I no longer care about these vows, God says, well then we don't need you to have that power now, do we? When he gave Delilah the secret, Samson was choosing Delilah over his commitment to Lord. Gary Enrig, a commentator, said this, 40 years, Samson had kept one part of his vow. He had broken all the other parts, but he had kept his hair unshaven as a sign of a commitment to God. He had not made a very strong commitment. He hadn't felt a deep faith, but he had trusted God at least in this. There was no magic in his hair. It was only a symbol of his separation to God. But if his hair was shaved, Samson's feeble dedication would crumble completely. As Samson illustrates, men just don't sense the Holy Spirit as a general rule. Instead, you see the Lord's power reflected in the fruit of the work that you do as he does it in you and through you. That's how the Spirit manifests himself. And his hand in our effort, the Lord's hand in our effort, will be evident to us as we put him to work. In other words, as we obey him, and others will see it and affirm it in us. The work's still going to be hard. Just because you're doing the work of the Lord and He's doing it through you doesn't make it suddenly easy. It can be difficult. But friends, the results will testify that God is working in you. But if you ever decide, if we ever decide we're going to go work without the Lord, as Samson has been doing now for some time, using his power to serve his own desires rather than to serve the Lord's, well, you might still achieve something. It's not as though you only do good things when you do it in God's power. There are impressive achievements that can be accomplished merely in human effort. And they'll be quite impressive. You know, a man speaking with the power of God can fill a stadium with worshipers, yes, but a man speaking lying and seductive words of worldly wisdom can also fill a stadium. They do it all the time. It can be hard to tell the difference between the two, especially if you only judge by the physical appearance of what they're accomplishing. Samson's been living in the flesh. He's been acting on his own. He's been failing to carry out the will of God. And yet he still achieves some pretty impressive results because of what God has given him. But eventually, the difference becomes apparent because the fruit of our effort plays out to conclusion. The work we accomplish in our own power just will not produce lasting spiritual growth. It only serves to increase our pride, our arrogance, and our selfishness because it's not glorifying the Lord. That's Samson right now. So the Lord has withdrawn his spirit from Samson. Samson thinks, oh, I can just keep doing what I'm going to do. He doesn't realize God's gone away. He's alone, in other words. He doesn't have his power. It's only when he goes to actually do the work God called him to do and he can't produce the results that he discovers that God is not working through him anymore. Isn't this ironic? The very thing Samson was equipped to accomplish, that is to defeat Philistines, is the very thing that he can no longer do because his life was not dedicated to that purpose. It's the great irony of the story. He possessed his strength his whole life and he never used it to glorify God. So when the Lord departs from him, because God's patience does have a limit, then he cannot do the very thing he's called to do when it comes down to it, to save himself. So the Lord allows the Philistines here to exact a series of very severe, but I should add symbolic punishments upon Samson. What do you mean by symbolic? Well, first, the Lord matched Samson's spiritual weakness with physical weakness. 
He's been spiritually weak for a long time. Now he gets to be physically weak to match it. He's lost his amazing strength. Secondly, the Lord matches Samson's spiritual blindness with physical blindness as they gouge out his eyes. And furthermore, his greatest spiritual weakness was going astray every time a Philistine woman caught his eye. Well, that ain't going to happen anymore, is it? God solved that problem. He'll never be able to find lustful pleasure in looking upon a woman. Finally, Samson becomes a slave in bondage to his enemy. He was a spiritual slave to his sin. Now he sits in physical chains, grinding grain. By the way, grinding a hand mill. That's what what you have to imagine here. He's literally got a crude hand mill. It was considered the lowest form of slave labor in the ancient world. It's mind-numbing. It's humiliating because it's considered woman's work. Grinding grain is considered woman's work, I guess. So in all in all, it just makes a, a man feel completely worthless to be doing this day in and day out. Now at this point in the story, it'd be easy to feel a little sympathy for Samson, I think. Don't forget, he is a judge. But on the other hand, for years he's been putting aside the calling of God so he can pursue his own interests. He possessed unique abilities. He was supposed to defeat God's enemies, and he did virtually nothing as God called him to do it. Instead, he toyed with the enemy. He almost dared God to do something about it. Past judges, you know, they weren't perfect either. They failed from time to time. But in the end, they defeated their enemies, didn't they? We always reach that point in the cycle of Judges' story where, you know, there's some moment in which the enemy's defeated and they ride off into the sunset at the end of that judge's life to varying degrees, yes. But now that pattern is completely broken. Samson's never raised an army. He's never defeated the Philistines. In the end, he can't even preserve himself. He's sitting in the jail that they put him in. He's defeated, not the victor, or so it would seem. He's emblematic of the entire nation of Israel. From, from the birth of this nation at Mount Sinai, they came into being as a people with a special calling from God. They were given a great power in his presence to defeat superior nations. He had great promises. They were to live in the light of that calling. They could never be defeated as long as they followed the living God. So when they began to seek for relationships with the world rather than with God, they grew weaker. And as they've grown weaker, they've been increasingly under their enemy's power, and that's where they sit today, under the Philistines. But here's the ray of hope that Judges also offers us. Anytime they repented, anytime they came back in humility, acknowledging their sin, the Lord was right there to forgive them and to restore them. Because He is faithful even when we are faithless. The lesson, of course, is you can't test God forever in that way and not expect severe consequences at some point. Our Lord is merciful and forgiving beyond measure, long-suffering, Scripture says. To His children, He does not bring vengeance. But discipline can feel a lot like vengeance when you're the one under it. The consequences of his actions brought Samson into this position. And at the same time, it makes him an example to the rest of us. Because to whom much is given, much is expected, Scripture says. You'll either live your life as an example of godliness or become an example of disobedience. And so it goes in the story of Samson as well. Just notice one more verse, verse 22. It says, However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. Now think, he's sitting in prison, right? And it's only natural. His hair is still growing. That's no surprise. So his hair begins to grow back. Why is it being mentioned here? 
Well, certainly alluding to something, we can sense that already. But here again, it's not unnatural for his hair to grow back. It would have happened to any human being, right? This is not something special, so take that thought out of your mind. It's just normal. What Samuel, the author, is doing is he's using Samson's hair as a symbol in this story. When Samson's hair was cut, it's a symbol for his spiritual unfaithfulness. And that's why God removed his spirit. So therefore, now that his hair is growing back, it becomes a symbol of Samson's heart turning back to the Lord. And it makes perfect sense, right? It's been said there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. What that means, of course, is that when a person comes to the end of himself, and that's that point where he realizes he has no hope within himself, he has no chance to to save himself, he's reaching that point where he might meet his maker. Well, it's in that moment quite often that somebody's heart is finally willing to turn in desperation to God. That's what that saying means. Well, that's where Samson is now, right? He's sitting in a prison, he's permanently blind, and he's chained by his enemies. Finally, it seems, he takes a look at his situation and says, you know, I think I know where I went wrong. I'm not sure, but I think I have this down now. And so what the author Samuel is indicating is that there's been this change in his heart. And it's just one simple verse using this hair as a symbol, a useful tool in the story. It reflects how Samson must be humbling himself before the Lord, that the Lord is seeing Samson return to him. And as a result, as we just said, the Lord is is ready to receive him back, ready to forgive him, ready to restore him, at least to a degree. Because after all, he can't get his eyes back, can he? When we take God through a period in which we have walked away, we have done what we have chosen in place of what he's asked us to do, and and then he's brought some kind of discipline. There's been some consequence. And in his grace, perhaps we come to that point where we recognize the whole of it, and we stop in our tracks and we say, you know, this isn't what I need to keep doing. And God is there to restore us, and by Christ's blood, we're forgiven of all sin. There's no concern that any of that is still hanging around. But friends, there may still be consequences. And sometimes those consequences, they just can't be reversed. Sometimes broken relationships, they don't come back. Men who have fallen in ministry due to some kind of immoral sin, you may never be a pastor again. You may never be in ministry again. It just may not be possible. It may not be biblically possible. Consequences don't always get erased. By the grace of God, we won't suffer for those things in eternity, and we will not have to concern ourselves in that. But, but at the same time, knowing there could be something in this life that we sacrifice that just can't come back, like in this case, his eyes, they're not coming back. It should be enough reason by itself for us to consider twice how we live, how we serve him. Do we want to risk anything? Or would we rather please the Lord who bought us? Next week, we're going to see the conclusion of this story. Take some time to reflect on him as judge. Take a second look at him as a picture of Christ and see how the Lord does use him one more mighty way. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know you are a loving Father, a Father of forgiveness, a Father of mercy. For Father, if it were not that way, you would never have sent your only begotten Son to put himself on a cross for our sake. What better proof do we need that you have forgiveness in mind for your children? But because we have been bought by the blood of Christ, Father, you also tell us that you expect from those who are now your children the obedience that you deserve. That we owe you, Father, our lives, for you have given your life for us. And, Father, as we do seek to serve you, we know we will not be perfect. No man this side of heaven can be. But you don't ask us for perfection, Father. You ask us for a heart that seeks to please you. And and in that heart, Many good things can come.
Samson, Father, is an example to us, as you teach us this morning, of a man who had much given to him, and a mission, and a calling. And in many ways, Father, he stepped it aside and went after things he preferred. And yet you were long-suffering, Father, for many years. You stood by as he did as he pleased, and you continued to wait. And then in a day when it was necessary, Father, you gave a consequence. Father, we know we'll see Samson in in a day to come. The man you equipped to write the letter of Hebrews tells us he is a man, that Samson's a man in the hall of faith. This is not a man that you turned your back on. One day we will talk to him face to face in the kingdom, and we, we will enjoy the stories of his life. But we will also remember, Father, that even a great man like Samson paid a consequence for disobedience. We pray, Father, we would be ones who could learn from his life in that way. We could be men and women who are sober in our purpose, Father. We, we know we've been forgiven of our sin, but we don't take it for granted. We know that our sins have been separated from us as far as the east is from the west, but we don't let that be licensed to sin. We seek to please you. And I pray, Father, this small church with so many good hearts would be an instrument in your hands to do good work as we seek to follow you. Use your spirit in us, Father, in a mighty way, and never let us take it for granted. We thank you for this reminder, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.